looking uh, today at Colossians 3:22 to 4:1 <clears throat> you'll notice that we're going over in your English versions to the first verse of the fourth chapter we explained last time uh, why we're doing that that in fact the first verse belongs to the end of these house codes <clears throat> chapter not properly divided in my opinion uh, so that 4.1 should actually be 3.26 to finish this series of binary relations, <clears throat> wives, husbands, children, parents, particularly fathers, and now slaves, masters. So let's uh, uh, pay attention to the reading of the passage so we'll have it before us, <clears throat> understanding that we're concluding in chapter 4, verse 1, from chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. As we pause upon this section, we, re- we realize that the Apostle Paul, the inspired Apostle Paul, <clears throat> does not embark on a social justice crusade. He accepts the institution of slavery without approving or endorsing it. It is a first century A.D. fact of life. <clears throat> Nor does he foment a radical abolition movement, a revolt against bourgeois masters and fascist overlords. Once again, slavery is a Greco-Roman fact of life in his first century culture. But what the inspired apostle does do He puts in place a relational paradigm which would lead to the eventual demise of slavery, particularly in Christian circles, a principle articulated most explicitly in his letter to Philemon. So we're reminded of the broader narrative element here, both ecumenical and local. By the word ecumenical, I mean worldwide. There were slaves in the world of the apostles' day. The Greco-Roman world of the first century was full of slavery, as I've already indicated. Locally, there were slaves in Colossae, as you would expect, and there were slaves in the church at Colossae. How do you know that? Philemon. Philemon, correct. Philemon was a master who was the slave. Onesimus. Go ahead, Randy. Onesimus is the slave. So <clears throat> we have a reflection concretely of the name of a master and slave in the Colossian church. In fact, that church met in the master's house, Philemon's home. This passage here reminds us of the paradigm of personhood, which we've also alluded to from the time we began to comment specifically on verses 18 and following. In this case, the slave is... A person. He is a human being. And his personhood comes from the fact that he has been created in the image of God. 
Some slaves are Christian human beings. They are Christian persons. And their personhood is a renewal in the image of Christ their Savior, a theme that has been emphasized in this third chapter. The renewal of the believer in the image of Christ Jesus, who is the image of God himself. So all slaves, whether they were Christian or not, enjoy an equality of person and a subordination of role, which is something else we've seen in these other binary relations in this chapter. Wives enjoy an equality of personhood with their husbands, but with a subordinate role. Children enjoy an equality of person with a subordinate role, and so too slaves and masters. Now, we've already pointed out the most noted illustration of this in the, in the scripture, and that is the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And you can refer to our previous series on Philemon, which is at the nwts.edu website. You can pick up that uh, link from your handout. Any questions or comments to these general, generally introductory comments? All right now, verse 22 has the translation of slaves in all things obey those who are your masters, not with external service. It's kind of a peculiarity uh, as to why the NASB translated this Greek word, ophthalmodulia, as external service, because as you can see, it's a compound word, ophthalmo and dulia, and what does ophthalmo remind you of? True? What English word do you see there? Optic. How about ophthalmology and ophthalmologist? And what kind of persons are they? Eye doctors. They're eye doctors. So the word ophthalmo means eye in Greek, and dulia is the word for servant or slave. <coughs> So what the apostle has done is coined his own word, literally eye service or eye servant. Now it's not wrong for the NASB to paraphrastically suggest that that means external service, but if you turn back to Ephesians for a moment, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 6, If you have an NASB, what do you note about that sixth verse of Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6, 6. I service. Thank you, Loretta. So they trans, and it's the same Greek word. The same Greek, the same word that Paul apparently coined himself, invented the word himself because it doesn't appear in any other Greek lexicons, particularly ancient Greek lexicons or lexicons contemporary with uh, the first century. So having used it in chapter 6, verse 6, literally, eye service in the NASB, why didn't they be consistent and use it here where it appears again? There's only two times it appears in the New Testament. I think it would have been a no-brainer to translate it exactly the same way both places and to make the point that it's not an ordinary Greek language word. It's not classic Greek. It's not patristic Greek. It's Paul Greek. So you have here a unique invention of the apostle in order to make his point. Now let's notice that uh, this uh, 
verse has the phrase um, <clears throat> masters on earth. And that phrase, once again, is a kind of idiomatic translation of the Greek. The Greek, literally here, is according to the flesh, as I've indicated on your outline. Now, the reason that I've expanded that is in order to note a contrast. And if you glance down to verse 1 of chapter 4, let me see if you can pick up the contrast. 4.1. Contrast between the phrase on earth. In heaven. Very good. And the second in comes from verse 23, actually, where he says, Do your work heartily. Now, heartily is not actually there in the Greek text. It's, as the margin of New American Standard reads, it's in your soul or in your spirit. And sometimes heart is a synonym for soul or spirit. But notice how that would line up with the literal rendering of according to the flesh. Render to your master's on earth, according to the flesh, contrast with what you render to your heavenly master in heaven, in the spirit, in the soul. So here, Paul playing upon that contrast between earth and heaven and flesh and spirit. Now, he's fairly comprehensive where he says in all things in this verse, is there any qualification of that phrase, in all things? Not apparently from the context here, but what if we look back at verse 18 and 20? Is there any qualification to the submission of wives to their husbands? Is there any biblical principle of civil disobedience or domestic disobedience? What's the key phrase in verse 18? In the Lord. In the Lord. What's the key phrase in verse 20? It's translated to the Lord. It's actually in the Lord again in the Greek. All right, so we're pointing out here that there is a principle of reservation or qualification. The submission is what is fitting, appropriate, or according to the Lord, to the will of the Lord, to the commandments of the Lord, to the character of the Lord. So if a husband orders his wife to commit adultery, is she required to submit? No, she's required, if she's a Christian, she's required to reject that, to disobey that commandment. If a child is commanded by his parents to steal something from the grocery store and bring it home, is that child required to obey if he's a Christian child? No, there's a limit to his obedience. His obedience is in the Lord. And so that applies here to the phrase, in all things, that which is appropriate to the relationship of authority and submission with respect to that which is appropriate to the commandments and authority of God and submission in obedience to his revealed will. So no slave would be expected to obey, to disobey one of the Ten Commandments in order to obey his master 
even at the penalty of his life. And that would certainly be true in the case of that Christian slave being commanded to abjure or deny the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, uh, uh, even today, that's a, a basic tenet in uh, the military, that same principle. You have the right to disobey. You have the duty to disobey uh, an unlawful order. An unlawful order, okay. I didn't know that. Thank you for, for that observation. Uh, that came about the uh, first time was in the Nuremberg trials during World ah, War II. Okay. And then it came about again um, uh, when they prosecuted Lieutenant Calley for the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Well, those are, those are two uh, very strong illustrations of why that principle would be appropriate. And it would have been inappropriate <coughs> to obey the commandment. So we do recognize that there is a limitation to what looks to be like a carte blanche statement of obedience and submission. Limitation is in accordance with the will of God, in accordance with the revealed will of our Lord Jesus Christ. That which is displeasing to him is pleasing, is also displeasing to us, whether we're a Christian wife or a Christian child or a Christian servant or slave. That applies to us in terms of drawing the limits on our submission and obedience to higher authority. All right, now, in verse 23, we want to take up the question of the motivation. What's the motivating principle for obedience of masters, of slaves to masters. God's command. Well, what's, what do you see in the verse, verse 23? What's the primary motivation there? Doing it for the Lord. For the Lord. <clears throat> the service of the slave is service unto the Lord even as he's serving the master. Service of the master, earthly, is a reflection of service to the master, heavenly, in terms of that contrast we pointed out in verse 22. Now, we haven't pointed out the uh, emphatic character here. This is a strong imperative in verse 22. And also here in verse 23, the imperative in 22 is obey. The imperative in 23 is the second do, whatever you do, do your work heartily. This submission arises, this, this imperative submission arises out of the indicative which Paul has been dealing with in this third chapter from the beginning of the first verse. Christian slaves and Christian masters, even as Christ, the Son of God, obeyed his Father without surrendering his equality of being or his dignity of person, so slaves do not surrender their dignity by being uh, under the imperative of obeying their masters, Christian or non-Christian masters. This reflection of the relationship between the state of being in Christ and the imperative to act out of that in terms of obedience to authority, higher authority and submission to proper uh, uh, discretion and command. Now, in 23... Paul begins that verse with whatever you do. And if you look up at verse 17, you'll see that he begins that verse in the same way, whatever you do. Now here in 23, he doesn't expand on what he means by whatever you do, but he does in 17. Notice, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Point number one. 
And point number two, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You can carry that expansion of verse 17 since it kind of heads up this whole section, this whole unit from 3.18 to 4.1, that whatever they do, wives, husbands, children, fathers or parents, slaves, masters, is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, number one, giving thanks through him to God the Father, number two. Now we might add in here as an addition that uh, when you're giving thanks to God the Father, he is the God and Father of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do give thanks to the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. So we could include the whole Trinity in this uh, whatever you do admonition or exhortation as a kind of thorough outworking of the triune God's work in our life through the Father and through the Son, Lord Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit, who's not mentioned here, but we can assume is certainly understood or implied. Here is a motivation, then, in whatever is done in the domestic situation of a slave's relationship to his master. Here is a motivation which drives him to a higher authority and to a higher arena, a higher realm, a higher dimension. It drives him into the heavenly arena. It drives him into the arena of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, whose name, whose names he bless, blesses and whose thanks is expressed to his heavenly Father for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. That changes the dynamic of why we're doing what we're doing. It draws us into a relationship which transcends the earthly and sanctifies and blesses it, eschatologizes it, draws it out of its, shall we say, ordinariness and places it before the face of our Father in heaven. Now, your outline has that word heartily, which we commented on a little bit earlier, literally from the soul or from the spirit, from the suke as it is in the Greek, which we, which we contrasted there in verse 22, so that he's talking about the internal uh, in the internal personal center, personality center of the slave himself, his soul, his spirit, his heart, that which, uh, which defines him as an individual in his spiritual condition. So do this, do your work from your soul, from your heart, from the center of your personality, which is, in the case of a Christian slave, <clears throat> the center of a Christ, being in Christ personality. And that reminds us of the character issue which is being discussed in this passage and has been discussed since verse 10 of chapter 3 from the new man or the new self or the new person renewed according to the image of the one who created him or recreated him. This is certainly a new element in emphasizing relations of slave to masters, something that was unknown in Greek or Roman culture, unknown in slave societies and still in slave cultures today. This is not a, a, a paradigm in which they see themselves serving. They're serving out of bitterness and chattel slavery or actually been reduced to sex slaves for particular purposes. <clears throat> so this is something that is not a characteristic of slavery as it has been, <clears throat> as it has been promoted by depraved and sinful men and women. But here the apostle is alluding to something that depends 
upon the new man image of verse 10 of this chapter. Even as he's got that behind the husbands and wives relationship, it's the new man or the new person dynamic that is operating behind these exhortations and imperatives. Same thing with fathers and children. It's the new man image which is driving this language to see themselves in terms of what they are renewed or regenerated or recreated anew in Christ Jesus by the love of God the Father and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that character is now to be demonstrated in how they serve, even slaves in serving their masters in this Greco-Roman slave culture. They're to serve as new men or women has been recreated in Christ Jesus for their serving ultimately not the earthly master as much as they're serving their heavenly master in so serving that earthly master in a way which is fitting and appropriate to a person who is in Christ. Same way with the marriage relationship, same way with the family relationship and the relationship of parents and children. But that in Christ orientation changes the dynamic, it changes the orientation of the relationship. It sweetens it, it enriches, enriches it, deepens it, it draws it out of the horizontal and the bitter and the, the, the confrontational into a heavenly sweetness and kindness and tenderness which comes down from above. Yes, Randy, you've been patient. Thank you. I think in the South there's many examples of this kind. There were many happy slaves in the South. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not... Denying. I'm not just saying you didn't disagree with that. I'm just using that as an example because most people think all southern slaves were bitter, but they weren't. No, that, that is correct. Not all the slave situations were Simon Legree situations of Uncle Tom's cabin. That is correct. <clears throat> uh, nonetheless, that doesn't remove the issue of whether slavery should have remained an institution in a Christian right, culture. Right. We fought a war to settle that issue. Another Seventeen, good proof text for Protestant work ethic. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Fine. Every exhortation here would be part of that. Part of that work ethic. Good. If, if you want to label it a good Protestant work ethic, yeah. right. I'm, I'm fine with a Protestant work ethic. Yeah. All right. Now <clears throat> we come to uh, verse twenty-four which reads in the New American Standard, particularly the last sentence in that verse, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, which takes away the imperative which is in this verse. It hides it. Uh, The imperative in the Greek text is last in the line, of the Greek line of this verse. And it is the imperative serve, the command to serve. Now, the American Standard thought it was awkward to put the imperative at the end, but you can still retain the imperatival force and translate this last phrase properly. <clears throat> serve the Lord Christ. Yes, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, but there's no relative pronoun in that Greek uh, text that the apostle wrote. What he wrote literally is serve the Lord Christ, but he put the imperative at the end of the line. The Lord Christ serve, as if the Lord Christ serve him. Get the point. Anyway, it's a better translation <clears throat> to to use the suggestion that I placed there on your handout. How does the NASB You can see it. Oh, well, I'll read it to you again. You don't have an NASB? No. Okay. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's their reading. The proper translation from the Greek is serve the Lord Christ. You see in the new NASB, they put a relative pronoun in there, whom. There's no relative pronoun in the Greek text. NASB does a little better job than the ESV. It says you are serving. Yes, they're, yeah, they're making it an indicative verb. It's not an indicative verb. It's an imperative mood. 
And in real, in the same way, really, the New American Standard is doing the same thing. You are serving the Lord Jesus if you turn it around that way. <clears throat> All right, this is that's a minor grammatical point, but nonetheless, it is possible to take the apostles' language and to <clears throat> to to keep that uh, 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 literal emphatic form there. It is a strong imperative. Yes, it is. So to reduce it to an indicative or something else is to reduce the force of it. You're right. All right, now this is, uh, this verse is talking about reward. So, uh, we need to pause and comment on, uh, reward. But before we do that, we'll keep our finger in Colossians 3. And let's turn back, first of all, to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. First Corinthians 4, 7. Thank you, Cheryl, for reading that. The, the verse in particular, the part of this verse in particular that I want us to have in mind as we continue our comments, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, you received it as a what? Gift. As a gift. So what do you have that you did not receive as a gift? Now, if you did receive it, do you have any reason to boast? A lot of people think they have the ability. Let's just look at what the apostle says. If you received it, do you have any reason to boast? People will say if they're working for What did the apostle say? They, they think they got a reason to boast. I'm supporting what he's saying. Why do you boast? In other words, you have no reason to boast if you've received a gift. All right, so what do you have that you have not received? What would be the most important thing that you received? Well, shall I ask it in my late mother-in-law's famous favorite question, what's the most important word in the Bible? Grace. Grace. So that's the most important gift, isn't it? What do you have that you have not received from grace? What grace gift have you not received freely? All right, now to Romans 11, verse This is referring to God. Or who has first given to him, that is to God himself, that it might be paid back to him again. In other words, who is it that has put God in their debt? Has anyone put God in their debt? Who has given to him that it may be paid back to that person again. Because what do you have that you have not received as a gift? You don't give a gift to God and earn anything from it. Or you don't give anything to God, gift or otherwise, and receive anything from it. You can't give him anything. He's perfect in himself. You can't extract anything from him. Because he's the source of all gifts. So you can't pay, you can't say, pay me for what I've done. 
Pay what you owe me. I've earned it. What do you have that you have not received? If it's a gift, you don't boast of having it as a debt, as a due, something that you deserve, something that you have earned. Your ability to work is given to you by God. That's okay, just hold off. That's the point I was trying to Just hold off, okay? So, we have two very strong biblical passages here from the pen of the Apostle Paul which underscore the essential free gift character of grace. That which is received from God is a grace gift. We also have a passage which will indicate that we cannot earn anything from him. We cannot be paid from him by him for doing something. Something that therefore indebts him to us requires him to give us a reward. Well, here in chapter 3, Paul is talking about the reward that belongs to slaves out of their obedience or relationship to their masters. So how is this ward reward conceived? All right, let's go back to our, to our handout. Is the reward the reward of what is in me? Or is the reward the reward of what is of Christ in me? Which would you choose? First or second? It is Christ. We're in Christ, right? So being in Christ, Christ in me, the hope of glory, as Paul says earlier in this epistle, the in Christ relationship would be the relationship upon which a reward would be grounded or based. Thus, next on your outline, not in me works, which would be a merit premise, a merit theory, but in Christ in me works, which would be a grace premise, a grace theory. All right, you following? The reward is the reward of what is of Christ in you. So it's, in effect, rewarding Christ for working in you. Even as he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and you will bear fruit from me. If you are joined to me, if you are in union with me, the vine, then you, the branch that is connected to me, you will bear fruit. You don't claim any credit for the fruit. You didn't produce it. Because it comes out of the union between the vine and the branch. It's not something that you did. And even if you tend to the branch and even if you keep the bugs off of it and so on, even that doesn't change the fact that the fruit comes not from your effort per se, but from the relationship between the vine and the branch itself. All right, so we go all the way back almost... 1400 years to Augustine, 15, uh, 1300 years, oh no, uh, it'd be 1700 years to Augustine. Augustine, in his conflict with the Pelagians, works out this paradigm or description of how reward is administered in the kingdom of heaven. God gives the grace and the works which flow out of the grace which he has given. So God gives the grace, he gives the grace works, and then rewards the works grace gives. He rewards his own gifts, not our merits or deserts. He gives the gift of grace he gives the work which comes out of the grace that he's already given, and then he rewards the work which is done out of that grace, even as he rewards the grace itself which is given him which he has given at the outset. There's no merit outside of that in Christ relationship. Even the reward is all of grace. It is not of works, not by works which we have done, 
It is by grace, grace alone. So that even when we come to this question of rewards for Christians, the Christian understands that the reward is not a deserved reward. It's not an earned reward. It's not that I'm going to do my good deed today so I can get extra blessings in heaven or in purgatory or whatever. No, that is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures are teaching that the reward of the good work that come out of the Christian life and behavior and walk, the reward that comes out, comes out of the in Christ relationship, comes out of the grace that you have been given in Christ Jesus, so that as Augustine said, God rewards the gifts that he has given even as he gives the gifts themselves. And that means he's sovereign. If he gives some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, that is his prerogative. But he is rewarding that which he has given and that which he has produced so that all glory goes to him and no glory comes to us. Are we going to stand in front of the throne of God in glory and say, look at all my rewards? You're going to stand in front of the throne of glory and you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior and Lord and for working in you by your, in me by your Holy Spirit, that which is pleasing in your sight. Well, you wouldn't get there in the first place if that was the way you, that way you were thinking. <laughs> All right. So, when you think of rewards and blessings in heaven, keep in mind that those rewards are not earned. Those rewards are the fruit of your relationship to being one with Christ, in Christ according to grace and salvation. All right, well, we'll take a little short break. Now, at verse 25, I have placed the label narrative, which is not really appropriate to this 25th verse, but it was the only place I could fit it onto the outline because I want to talk about the broader narrative than just slavery in the Greco-Roman culture, something I already alluded to at the top of the outline. Here I want to talk about the biblical pattern of servanthood or slavehood, as we might call it, where Christ himself becomes the slave of the Lord God, his master. He becomes the servant of the Lord God. Now, we did comment upon this last time when we talked about the Isianic or the servant songs from the book of Isaiah, the most famous of which is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which, again, I commended to you for meditation at times before coming to the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful passage to re- review and to renew your understanding of how its prophetic power is per- perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ in that 700 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. What a marvelous indication of the inspiration of the Bible. But at any event, that picture from chapter 40 of Isaiah on to 53 of the servant of the Lord is a picture of the eschatological slave. He makes himself a bond slave of his Lord and Master, his his God, as he enters in to the incarnation, and to his growth as a boy and then a man, and his taking on that character in order to redeem us from a bondage which is worse than slavery. It is a bondage which ends up in hell and damnation. Jesus is willing to undergo that in order to deliver us into the freedom, the emancipation, the liberty of the sons and daughters of God, where we are not slaves anymore. We are, in fact, those who are a part of his adopted household. Now, this is the mirror of servanthood 
which the apostle is implicitly placing before the slaves and masters of this passage. It is not explicit, I admit that, but it is in the background because it is what makes this relationship vitally rich, not onerous necessarily, not burdensome, and never cruel. Never cruelty would be a part of the depraved sinful character of the institution. But this relationship would be a sweet relationship of imitating Christ in being a servant, faithful, obedient, submissive servant, even as Christ was a submissive, faithful servant to his Father in heaven. He came to do his will happily, heartily, with his whole soul and spirit. He came to do the will of his Father in heaven. Lo, I come to do thy will, O Lord, it is my delight. So, slaves, delight to serve your masters because in so doing, you are imaging, you are mirroring, you are reflecting that character that Christ Jesus himself took on and reflects in your place, on your behalf, and in your stead. Now you see, you see how this institution can in fact be <clears throat> redeemed or preserved or made positive. As Christ delights in his Father's will, so the Christian slave delights in Christ-like fashion in his Master's will. The reflection occurs in both places. It is not cut off from that in Christ bond and relationship which has sweetly been given by grace through faith. So that when we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, the in Christ of master and slave alters the relationship. It alters the attitude of the heart. Having the mind and heart of Christ as a master to a slave having the mind and heart of Christ mirror-like as a slave to a master. That is the seed that is here of the transformation of the institution of slavery into liberation and emancipation. And that consistently in Christian cultures, even though it took a while, in Christian cultures that is what caused that institution to wither and die away. It was the realization that in Christ, this bond could not be cruel, could not be chattel, it could not be theft and kidnapping, it could not be lust of sex slavery, it could not be not in Christ. The institution then had to disappear so that the liberty with which Christ has set us free might be prominent and, in fact, might be foremost. Both master and slave in 4.1 are seated at the right hand of God in Christ, chapter 3.1. Both master and slave in 4.1 have their life hidden with Christ in God in 3.3. This is what will transform Slave, the slave institution as one of property and cruelty into one of employer-employee dignity and equality. For in fact, this relationship here is the relationship of an employer to an employee, an employee to the employer. And so the in Christ paradigm fits that relationship even in a modern shall we say, a Western cultural framework. We bring to bear upon these working relationships. We bring to bear this pattern of being in Christ as we work in those relationships. Whether it's husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, we want to see ourselves as Christian believers in Christ, mirroring Christ in those arenas. I don't deny 
that it's sometimes very difficult. I don't deny that it is necessary even for the sake of your integrity to resign from a job in order to be free to serve Christ or to serve your conscience in Christ elsewhere. But this is the pattern of your motivation. This is the pattern of your identity. This is the pattern of your character. You have been dignified with being called Christ's servants. And you are not afraid of being called slaves of Christ because that is a delightful servitude. For he has bound you to himself as your redeeming master, your saving master, your liberating master. So all that service to him is sweet and free. That's all I have to say this afternoon. Save to wish you Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And Lord willing, we'll see you in 2018. Let's pray. Our Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus, blessed Son of the Father, you together with the Spirit, we adore you three in one, one in three. Thank you for reminding us of the sweetness of the relations in Christ, from husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents, servants to masters, masters to servants, employers to employees, employees to employers. We thank you for reminding us of how sweet they can be in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon our efforts, not that we are earning anything thereby, but that the fruits of your grace may richly adorn our lives and quiet our consciences and give us that hope of glory, even as Paul says in this letter, Christ in you, the hope of glory. May it be more and more so in this this era in which we remember glory to God in the highest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.